This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by... Hold on a second, we gotta take this call. Go ahead, caller, you're on the air. Are you all ready to do the podcast? Yeah, Franklin, where are you? We're about to start this thing. Hey, I'm up here in Michigan. I'm helping my boy Kid Rock get in the ballad. We're out here taking the message to the people, taking the party to the people. <laughs> you're on the staff? What? Staff, volunteer, whatever. It's all kind of loose, but what's, in, what's important... Details, details will come later? That's right. So let me let me get a picture. You're you're walking door to door in Detroit, getting signatures for a guy whose tagline is he wants to be the pimp of the nation. Is this? Do I got this right? Yeah, right. We're born free. We're gonna change things. All right. Well, before you change anything, you need to get back here. We're about to do this show. I'm gonna grab one more tat. I'm on my way. <laughs> Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the high stakes air wars over raising the minimum wage is heating up. And things are bubbling up in Washington, D.C. that actually mean good things ahead for entry level employers and key policy issues. Those stories plus the legislative scorecard with news about wages, paid leave, and other top items from around the country. Hey everybody and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host Sean Kelly with Align Public Strategies partners Joe Kefauver and Franklin Coley who made it back just in time. Our guy from the DC bubble Joe Renzel is once again operating outside of the district, this time in Denver. I want to begin with what's become really a heated debate over this report that we first talked about on the podcast a couple weeks ago. All right, guys, we knew when this happened, when the report came out of Seattle about minimum wage and its actual effect, we knew that the unions were not going to sit around and take this report lightly. It's taken a little longer than we expected, but now they are battling back. What are we seeing this week? Yeah, it really started probably 48 hours after the initial rush of coverage that was negative towards the Seattle uh, minimum wage increase. And you started to see a flood of articles challenging the methodology, um, challenging the results, challenging the figures, you know, pushing back. I've, if we step back for a second, I think what's at stake here is framing this conversation for the coming years. And I think everybody, everybody involved in this conversation recognizes that. But this is more than a media relations issue where they're just trying to get their message out to the media. This surely this whole thing will provoke more action. I think so, but I think what the interesting thing was that, to Franklin's point, there was this, you know, the, the initial study was published, there was a lot of media around it. I think it caught the unions and the labor community flat-footed. There was this three or four day gap, two or three, four day gap, where there was really no response from them, tepid at best. And then now you can could, you could just see the sandbag going up, the alarm bells, the PR firms being retained. And in the last week, we've seen this steady barrage of well-placed articles pushing back on the veracity of the study and the impact of the study and whether it was right. And so you just, from a PR war perspective, it's interesting to watch them get caught kind of flat-footed, as I said, and then kick their you know, well-oiled PR machine into gear. So you're seeing profiles now, Forbes and Bloomberg, that they're getting run of individual 
you know, workers saying, no, I'm, I've benefited from this. This has been a great thing and pushing back with elected officials and so forth. So just from a, from a messaging war, from the air war type of thing, it's been a really interesting week. Yeah, and I think what you're going to see more of and is being reported that the city of Seattle is actually pulling the funding for the University of Washington and moving that funding over to the University of, wait for it, Berkeley. Ah, somebody um, didn't like the results, I guess. That's right. They took yeah. their marbles and went home. So in Berkeley, if we remember, you know, they released their own report, which essentially contradicted the University of Washington report. It didn't get as much attention because, quite frankly, it wasn't viewed as being credible. And so, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the, the first stories that came out really quoted and focused on the University of Washington piece. But now we're gonna have Berkeley out there in the coming years, you know, and, and, telling us telling us the impacts of the minimum wage increase in, in Seattle. And, so. and the Berkeley studies mostly get discounted anyway because they're all union funded. We know what the outcome is going to be. It's the traditional union funding, business funding kind of conversation that we have. Think about the, the, the Seattle study; it was totally neutral, and it didn't get the result they wanted. And so now they're taking their money and putting it to get the result they want. But I would have to imagine other markets will have seen, other major cities will have seen that report and they'll ask the same question that Seattle did. What is the effect? And they'll dig into the numbers the way the University of Washington did. So we're starting in St. Louis recently, the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve there, some economists put together a report and study. And, you know, you can see what you want to see in the results, but the recommendations that they came out of out of the results was that minimum wage in St. Louis, the increase, the short-lived increase there, was a poor tool to help. It was a poor anti-poverty tool. There were better tools like earned income tax credit or affordable housing measures um, that would have had the really desired effect to to help the bottom income bracket within St. Louis. So. Just to, just to put it into context, they're talking about in that lower bracket that 74,600 estimated city residents, and this really only affected about 10,000 Small people. portion. Yeah. And, and the report found that most people that were impacted by this minimum wage increase weren't, you know, low income. You know, these were teenagers getting a summer job that were, you know, in a multi-earner family that were, you know, middle class or upper class, whatever. And so the minimum wage increase was not targeted to help the people it was intended to help. So as we move forward and we continue to have these conversations around the country and as we continue to see minimum wage increases go into effect around the country, more and more of these studies and reports come out like University of Washington, like the Federal Reserve study in St. Louis. It's going to be important that, you know, the business community pieces these together and kind of make the case and make the argument for entry-level employment. And quite frankly, I, th I think the business community should be looking very hard at getting behind some of these other policy measures like earned income tax credit and being a participant, a stakeholder in that process. Yeah, I think the important thing out of the St. Louis study to me is, you know, most economists in this space will tell you whether they're pro-minimum wage, that the wage market's not the place to address this issue of inequality and wage stagnation. It's the tax code's the better place. Mm -hmm. It's over on that side of the ledger is the responsible place that most economists from the left and right agree is the place to address the issue. And what the St. Louis study does, it's most important, is it, it validates that yet again. Unfortunately, 
fight for the earned income tax credit does not have the same ring to yeah. it. So <laughs> yeah. probably be a little while before that takes off. Yeah. Renzel, I know that you're in Denver and you're outside of the bubble, but in your absence, things are really bubbling up in D.C. Uh, not what, a lot of action, not a lot of concrete action, but a lot of bubbling. Franklin, what's happening at the NLRB level, and are we kind of being teed up for some wins here? So there's a lot of stuff in movement that is going to result in some concrete outcome employers, concrete outcomes employers are going to like in the near future. So the nominees to the NLRB were approved in committee this week, so now they go to the full Senate for a vote. We don't know when that's going to be scheduled. Bubble Boy and his friends up in D.C. It is a dang mess, so it's hard to tell when anything's going to get done. Well, they got to take off the month of August. They're exhausted by their inactivity. Only, I mean, ha- only half a month, guys. Come on now. They're working you hard. Have to, you have to work in that golf game. That is, that's important. But, but these guys are going to sail through both of them, right? Yeah, they're going to get approved. It's just a matter of when. And once they get seated, it's going to take a while before they start actually issuing opinions. At the exact same time, in another committee... We had some other bubbling, and that was the NLRB budget um, was approved and voted out. Yet again, it's a long process, but included in that budget was— Just on the House side. Just on the House side. Senate hadn't even touched this stuff yet. And the Department of Labor. There was a writer— there was a rider that will prevent the NLRB from enforcing the Obama-era joint employer standard, um, the micro-union standard established under the specialty health care case. So essentially, there's some stuff included in that budget that will prevent the NLRB from pursuing a lot of this stuff that employers had major problems with. But remember how this, this movie always plays out the same way. We kind of get everything we want in the House version. And the Senate's a very different conversation, a very different process, and no guarantee that any or all of that stuff will stay in the Senate version. Yeah, and, and yeah, Joe— also, You guys, guys, you're also talking about an appropriations budget process here that, you know, hasn't worked in the last, you know, several cycles. The, you know, Franklin's right. The inclusion of these riders in the, in the Department of Labor funding is, has been the Republican play, you know, for a couple cycles now. Now, obviously, they have more support in the Senate and, the, and a friendly president, um, so it, it could pass. But at the same time, the overarching appropriations process very complex, very time consuming. You know, as we talked about, they got a lot of you know crazy chaos going on. You know, on the Senate side with the health care, so timing is still you know very much up in the air. Guys, from a from a business model perspective, and these key business issues that operators have been hoping for some movement on. Is there reason to be optimistic? Absolutely. There's reason to be optimistic. We're starting to see signs of life. You know, it took forever to get a labor secretary in. It's taken forever to get these NLRB nominees in, but we're starting to see some movement on the agency front. One other thing, just in the business model, there is also another joint employer bill floating around out there that we expect is going to be introduced sometime maybe before the August recess, more likely in the fall. So bottom line, a lot of bubbling going on, a lot of golf games going to be scheduled, lots of cocktail hours at the Capitol Hill Club. Don't forget, don't forget about the lunches, Franklin. That's right. That's right. Those martini go, lunches. Go, go. But <laughs> amongst all that, amongst all that, we're starting to see signs of life and important issues. Yeah, I think the, the, the important piece is while we tend to get focused on the logjam on Capitol Hill and how the agenda has just been grinded to a halt you know, so forth, 
good things are happening on the agency side, and in particular with the Department of Labor and in, in, in agencies that are important to these industries. And, and uh, Acosta is, is, in my opinion, one of the strongest cabinet appointees they have. Uh, he has backfilled his organization with good people. So the DOL is getting slowly but steadily staffed with competent adults, good professionals, and I think good things are, are beginning to happen at DOL and will for the next couple of years. And you yeah. guys, do you guys all think that Acosta is kind of opening to listen? He's open to listening? Very much so. Yeah, very much so. so. And one one issue that I would flag because there was a development this week that's important to the restaurant industry in particular is it looks like the Labor Department is going to start moving towards rescinding uh, the tip pulling rule, essentially going back to the uh, the rule that was in place before the Obama administration rule, giving greater flexibility to employers. So I know a lot of um, restaurants that you know, have a tipped workforce are going to applaud that movement. And Renzel, there's a couple of policy issues that the Trump administration has now delayed. What are they and what's the effect? Yeah, I think when you focus in on things like menu labeling and CEO pay, you know, those are issues that were of concern to, you know, our employer community. And they've been put on delay, as you said. The problem is you've got states and localities then stepping into that space and, and still either trying to enforce laws that they passed under the Obama administration or, you know, passing new laws, you know, Portland on CEO pay, New York City on menu labeling, you know, there's litigation proceeding, you know, by the National Association of Convenience Stores and others um, pushing litigation in New York City. The, the kind of worry I think that folks should have is, this, is if the courts define that a delayed federal rule doesn't preempt a state or local uh, municipality from, from moving along the same track. You know, that could be a problem and that could open up kind of a windfall of, of more state and local activity in some of these spaces that are of concern to employers. Yeah, the bottom line is we, we, we go to get congressional action so we can prohibit states and localities from having this patchwork of stuff. And then the process gets derailed, the process drags and opens the door for states and cities to get back in the action. So we haven't at the end of the day really accomplished much of anything. And what's happened is we've turned our attention toward D.C. and we have this false sense of security that we don't need to worry about this other space anymore. And we're getting wake-up calls on a bunch of issues. I'm going to ask you not to punch the equipment <laughs> for the remainder of the podcast. <laughs> Can I still punch Franklin? <laughs> and, and so we're now we're, we're having to focus in a bunch of places that we didn't realize and didn't plan to. And so we've been, I don't want to say asleep with the switch. We just thought we were going to be taken care of at another level of government. It's not working out. So we've got to turn our attention back to these issues playing out at the state and local level. It's time for the legislative scorecard. These are the top items affecting business models around the country. And let's get it going out of the bubble with healthcare. What's the latest? Yeah, we'll make this easy. Same stuff, different week. All right, let's move on to wages. Republicans having a hard time getting to 51 on anything. Uh, we'll see what happens next and the, week. And the, the McCain thing makes it even harder. All right, seriously now, let's move on to wages. We've talked, enough, we've talked too long about health care. I'll take it first. Uh, California, we have two cities, Seaside, Santa Clara. They can't wait for to get $15 an hour the, at the statewide level, so they're going to rush in on their own. Um, so there's legislation pending in both those cities. And then my home county of Montgomery County, Maryland, back in the news again. Leaders lead, my friends. Um, <laughs> another effort at $15 an hour. Obviously, it passed last year. was vetoed by the county executive. 
uh, a guy looking to run to replace him for county executive appears to be making more of a political stunt, but $15 is going to be introduced again in Montgomery County, Maryland. This seems like it's just never going to go away there. No. Crab cakes, football, $15 wages. That's what Maryland does. Renzel, paid leave? Yeah, paid leave. You got the Cuomo administration up in New York. They released some updated regs on the state's uh, family, paid family leave law. You know, there's some requirements for employers to offer in the leave. It's paid for by employees. Uh, employers can start deducting that as of July 1. The regs go in effect January 1, 2018. You got Duluth, Minnesota, uh, following up with the Twin Cities, uh, looking uh, that they're forming a task force to rec- make recommendations about a paid leave proposal. Um, you know, that's, some, that's a new development trying to uh, make sure that they keep pace with their uh, friends down south in Minnesota. And Franklin, what's the latest on CEO pay? So we've talked about this issue a uh, couple podcast, I think, in a row now. It's a hot issue. There's the SEC rule, which may be rescinded, may not, probably looking like not at this point. But this week, uh, EPI, which is the Economic Policy Institute left-leaning think tank, put out a report similar to what the AFL-CIO has done in the past. It found that the average, and this is for quote-unquote large companies, but the average ratio of CEO compensation to frontline worker is 271 to 1. So it kind of continues <laughs> so that, close. Yeah, kind of <laughs> continues that that drum beat, that income inequality drum beat. Um, and we're going to just we just we're going to continue to see more of this. And Joe Kefauver, the sugar tax issue in Cook County, Illinois is uh, still going on with some potential layoffs of government workers. Yeah, this is a terrible story. So the Cook County government this week notified 300 workers that they were going to be laid off because the county is lacking revenues they anticipated from the beverage tax. And so because that's tied up in court. It was supposed to go into effect July, July 1. 1. But can you imagine you know, your career being ended because a soda tax is not delayed two weeks? It's delayed two weeks, so you're out of a job. It's, just, it's a ridiculous situation. It talks about, you know, it just speaks to the whole fiscal upheaval that's going on in Illinois, in Cook County, the places, you know, the state budget has a $14 billion deficit so yeah. it's a mess out there so that and this is probably going to be a long legal process we don't expect this is going to be resolved in the near term but i've never heard a city blame job cuts on a sugar tax yeah it's a new one um philadelphia has a similar issue um the courts have there's been a number of court challenges to the philadelphia sugar tax it looks like there's going to be one more run at it um so the american beverage association has filed another another lawsuit um, and that'll probably take some months to play out as well. I, I like their spirit. No matter how many, how many times we keep losing, we keep filing. So going back in. And in Texas, they started a 30-day special session to address unresolved funding issues. Franklin, why don't you take this one as a guy from North Carolina? What else, is, what else are they going to get to in Texas? There's a lot of stuff that they're going to get to, but the big thing is the bathroom bill. And that is going to be first out of the gates. It is going to be ugly. It is going to be nasty. I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen, but there are a lot of different interests, you know, social conservatives, companies, corporations, business associations, all taking sides, and the rhetoric has already started. We have TV ads, radio ads, um, the governor, lieutenant governor want to push this thing through, business communities fighting back. Just like North Carolina, it's going to be ugly, very, very ugly. Hey, guys, I do want to mention one thing because I was interrupted earlier by a Kid Rock, what, what are we calling you now? The sport team? What are, what are you, Franklin? 
Kid Frank. <laughs> You're like the first campaign staffer for him? I'm, I'm a volunteer <laughs> and a believer. Coming door to door and in Detroit, knocking on doors. That's right. Picked this episode up, picked up 283 <laughs> petitions for Kid, three new tats. You're well on your way. <laughs> and we're getting ready to do this thing. You had your sons out, guns out, tank top on. We'll this episode it. of Working Lunch has been fueled by Duffy's Sports Grill. And what do we have on the menu today? I'm bringing in the rodeo burger. I'm trying the new New York Reuben sandwich. Mm. Amateur hour, Tex Mex chicken egg rolls. Hey guys, have you seen the brownie Sunday live and in person? Oh man, could you imagine what Carson Chandler would do to that thing? I mean, that thing gets Nappy delivered time. to your table. You just you just start to weep. It's a beautiful. We got we get we got to get more of the details about that from Jason Emmett from Duffy's. He's going to be joining us at the FRLA Marketing Operations Summit. That's August second and third. It's a big opportunity for us. Why? Because we're going live. <laughs> we're going to have our first live audience. For a working lunch podcast. Or a working lunch train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> big opportunity. Big, 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 big threat. <laughs> I think we got to work out some of the kinks next week. I mean, you know, the 14 hours it takes to make us look smart in an 11-minute podcast. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out on stage. We'll see what happens. We'll talk to you again next week.